Hello, I'm Bashaina Dimira, and I'm pleased to be with Gianluca Rizzo, the editor and translator of the recent volume from the Opunta series, Mariano Baino, Yellow Fox, and other poems. We extend a warm welcome to Professor Rizzo. Thank you. Glad to be here. Can you briefly tell us about your research interests and how you got to this text? Additionally, can you say a few words and to introduce Mariano Baino, the author of these poems, to an audience that might not be familiar with his work? Sure. So I, I must confess, I don't remember the first time I came across this book. Um, but um, in general, but it fits right into my interest. So it's not surprising that I should come across it at some point. Um, uh, I'm very interested in poetry, especially uh, Renaissance and contemporary poetry. One might think that those are two very different kinds of poetry, but actually both of them are very concerned, both periods are very concerned with experimenting with language. Uh, what should the language of poetry be? That's a very big question uh, in Italian poetry of both those periods. And I'm particularly interested in um, macaronic literature, that is literature that results from the mixing of different languages. Traditionally, macaronic is Latin plus another of the European languages, Italian, uh, Tuscan, uh, usually. Uh, but this happens continue, you know, constantly across uh, different literatures and across different uh, linguistic codes. You can think of messages that are half verbal language and half in images. And I was saying it's not surprising that I came across uh, Baino's book because he, it is essentially a macaronic book. This uh, Yellow Fox, it's a long poem. So Yellow Fox and other uh, poems contains Yellow Fox, which is a longer poem, and then selections of two other uh, book of, books of verse. But especially Yellow Fox, the long poem, is a macaronic text in that mixes together different uh, languages. He mixes together Italian, Neapolitan, French, English, Spanish, but also mixes together different genres, uh, different registers, meaning different levels of uh, where uh, linguistic code is uh, modulated. The other part of your question was a bit of background on Baino. Where does he come from? A way of thinking of this is to placing him within the 20th century. In Italy and in Europe, you could say, there are three different waves of avant-garde. The first one was inaugurated in 1909 by futurists. Uh, uh, F.T. Marinetti publishes on Le Figaro uh, in French uh, in February, the uh, founding manifesto of futurism. Then you have a second avant-garde wave uh, in the 60s. You could say 1961 or 1963 as a year, depending on a number of things. But that's what we call in Italy the Gruppo 63 or the neo avant-garde. And then you have Baino. Uh, his group, his wave is the third and last of the 20th century. Now we are in the 80s, 87, 89, depending on how you, you mark it. And their group was called Gruppo 93. Uh, so you have Futurist, 1909, Gruppo 63, Group 63, 61, 63, and then Gruppo 93 in 89. It's not by chance that you have 63 and 93. Uh, there is some irony and some sort of self-awareness there. They took the six, they turned it upside down, and they made it nine. Um, 
and it doesn't mark 93 the year of beginning of this movement but rather the expiration date um that was really interesting um let's talk more about the neo-avant-garde movement how does bino both adhere and diverge from the traditions established by the neo his neo-avant-garde predecessors so we don't want a whole lecture here, right? This could be a whole lecture of what are the difference, but let me give you like the highlights. So this is the third time that an avant-garde has been tried uh, in Italy. And the system, the mainstream literature has ways of coping with these sort of attempts to break that the avant-garde progressively has been mounting. One, one of the main characteristics of avant-garde is this sense of antagonism toward the, the mainstream culture, right? That's an undeniable. Even the metaphor avant-garde implies a sort of bellicose, belligerent body of uh, men, usually, but not exclusively, that um, sort of wage war on the uh, received ideas of art. So this antagonism is baked in. So this is the third time that they mounted and um, the mainstream has uh, incorporated for the most part uh, some of the criticism and some of the solutions that have come over the years from the avant-garde. I'll give you a very practical example. If you think of contemporary advertisement where the written part and the visual part influence each other and in fact converge toward um, or contrast depending on what you're trying to do but both are equally uh, crucial for conveying the meaning that is being uh, articulated that is a lesson that comes from futurism their idea of uh, verbal visual texts was one of the main sort of revolutions that they put forth so that started as an avant-garde sort of assault on a received idea of uh, literature uh, receive idea of how arts should all be in their lane you know painting here and uh, literature there and then has been assimilated by mainstream culture into something that can be used to peddle products to sell stuff and so you see how these things are um, these innovation these breaks are progressively normalized and neutralized now They've done it the first time, the Futurist, with great scandal of the bourgeois of the time. The second time, the neo-avant-garde did the same with less scandal. It was more like the intellectual that were accusing them of being in false faith, of doing this as just an operation to gain notoriety. You can imagine that the third time around, nobody bats an eye. This is just uh, business as usual. And that's the key problem that the third wave of avant-garde and Bino have. Is there space within culture contemporary to them to mount a uh, direct opposition to mainstream literature and culture? It's a huge problem that we have ourselves too, even more so now. Um, and it's a problem that it's made even more difficult when a culture in which everything is close to everything else and everything seems replaceable by anything else mm -hmm. if you think of you know a, a digital world in which everything is uh, broken down in uh, zeros and ones uh, the same uh, constituting principles can be marshaled to either mean one thing 
or its exact opposite with no sort of difference in the ways in which these uh, meanings are modulated and presented. So how do you oppose mainstream culture, mainstream literature, mainstream ideals, given that they are so fluid, so nimble, so capable of absorbing and neutralizing any direct attack? That's the problem, I think, that uh, the new problem that the third wave of avant-garde have and the solutions that they, the Grupo 93 had to come up with were necessarily different from uh, their predecessors. You talk a little bit about how in the digital world, um, one thing can be, mean something else and also it's polar opposite. Um, to elaborate on this, can you, considering that Bino composed this book during the early stages of the internet, can you talk about how this backdrop and technology in general influenced this text? I think you are um, pointing to a key coincidence or a key rhyme or correspondence, if you will, between Yellow Fox and the internet. Both of them, in fact, were born in 1993. 1993 is the year of first publication of Yellow Fox, but also is the year in which Mosaic was released. And Mosaic was the first graphic uh, web browser ever to be used. And it was instrumental for the development of the internet as we know it today. So there is this coincidence, both came out at the same time. But I think there is something else going on. First, the difference, a fax is not the internet, right? Yellow fax is centered around this metaphor of the fax machine and the fax uh, sheet that came out of the machine as its main metaphor, as I said. Uh, which is a holdover, right? Once you have the internet, you don't need uh, fax machines. I mean, I don't know that you ever sent a fax. I remember sending a few faxes, but I don't think that people do that anymore. So uh, Bino chose a technology that was on the decline in order to simulate what was going on in the greater world and in, on the internet. Throughout the um, poem, Bino mixes together and juxtaposes different voices, different fragments of texts coming from different literary traditions, from different sort of, the, high, the eyebrow uh, is next to the lowbrow, the traditional is next to the uh, innovative and new. All these jumble of things and uh, mentions and references and data clashes one with the other, and one can't help but think about the different windows that uh, everybody has open on their uh, desktop simultaneously. And the only reason why they're next to each other is because the medium that we're using allows for it seamlessly. Now, this has consequences. If you can see the Mona Lisa next to, I don't know, the pictures of your cousins, things become more meaningful and less meaningful at the same time because they occupy the same space. Uh, this is what Benjamin talked about uh, in his famous essay on the uh, work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction when he talked about the loss of aura. So things are not as unique as they were once, but also this allows for more free manipulation 
and appropriation and modification of things to make them uh, more a reflection of your own self, but also to turn them into possible tools that one can use to talk about reality, criticize it, imagining uh, different realities. And to go back to what we were talking about earlier, meaning how is it possible to mount a third wave of avant-garde? Well, this is the way the Bino devised. Uh, mix everything together so that everything now is suspiciously familiar. And so this critical gaze is demanded wherever you go, no matter what you uh, read or watch or listen to. Yeah, one of the things you talked about was the fact that in Bino's poetry, he combines a lot of different factors that are traditional, um, innovative, highbrow, lowbrow. Considering that um, Bino's poetry is complex and has a lot of experimentation, how does he accomplish that without sacrificing um, reader comprehension? Yeah, it, this is another crucial point you raised. So this is all well and good, right? Uh, people can do whatever they want in their backyard and build as extravagant a text as you want. But who is it for? How do you ensure that it reaches your uh, audience? This is also the criticism that many leveled against avant-garde art in general, right? It's too difficult. Uh, it's too complicated. It's out of touch from uh, the sensibility of the common man and so on and so forth. So that criticism is since futurism, you know, so it's 100 years old. But is there any merit to it? That's really the question. I think the problem is in the question itself. We are assuming that there is one modality for reading, yeah. one in which the meaning is neatly packaged by the author and then delivered to the reader whose job is to just undo the bow and then have the whole thing unravel in front of their eyes. That's a very specific idea of reading in a very diminutive and sort of mortifying idea of reading and comprehending. Comprehension is an active, uh, it's an activity, it's something that you do actively, that you pursue. And it's not something that necessarily needs to be facilitated in order to be engaging. Think about all the mysteries that people read. The whole point there is that there is something obscure that takes a while to unravel, and the pleasure is all in that, in taking one's time to unravel it. So this is to say that there are different modalities of reading, and there are different modalities of engaging the reader. One strategy would be to uh, sort of predispose a text that can passively be absorbed, more or less passively absorbed by the reader. And the pleasure there is one of probably identification. So you put yourself in the spot of the protagonist and you pretend that those events are happening to you. And that's something that you get pleasure from because by proxy you are living those uh, events. But another way of thinking of readership is that of challenging it. This antagonism that we said was always uh, crucial to avant-garde movements apply here too. The reader can be also an adversary. There is pleasure and game and play and joy uh, to be had 
from this antagonistic relationship with the author that you're reading, the text that you have in front of you. But even without going all the way to antagonism, there is a very healthy challenge that sometimes is good to uh, have thrown at you and is good to pose to others. This is a way of understanding texts that uh, Umberto Eco, the famous um, semiotician, uh, encapsulated in his definition of text as lazy machines. So a text is a machine that doesn't really want to do the work and requires the energy of the reader in order to get into action and do its thing. So these, you could say that avant-garde text in general and binos uh, in particular are they require more energy but once they get going they perform all sorts of miracles and uh, fireworks and other uh, beautiful things to witness so i don't think we want them to be easily comprehended uh, but also on the other hand we don't have to be intimidated by the extra little extra work that they require because the reward is much greater. So we talked a little bit about the extra energy needed in terms of readers to comprehend um, Bino's poetry. Um, let's move to talk about the extra energy that might be required of a translator, given that this poem relies on a lot of metaphors, symbolism, and wordplay. Were there any specific instances in Yellow Fox and other poems that you found particularly challenging to translate? Yeah, so this is another great uh, question. I mentioned how there is a lot of, um, uh, there are a lot of references to um, literary traditions. And now uh, a lot of them, not all of them, but a lot of them belong to the Italian literary tradition. And so, which is uh, quoted or hinted to, but uh, usually in an ironic way, uh, in a way that diminishes it. It, it tries to dispel the aura of sacrality and, you know, that traditions usually have. So the challenge there is how do you do this in a different language that has a different literary tradition? Meaning, how can you recreate the same sense of um, bringing down some of the uh, celebrated authors if the um, uh, authors themselves are not as well known uh, in, in the English tradition or known, not known at all, and their texts are not as popular and as widely read. So this was uh, an overall challenge throughout the piece. One place in particular was challenging uh, in uh, one of the sections of the Yellow Facts, Baino quotes a poem that all school children read in Italy. It's by uh, poet Ungaretti, 20th century poet, one of the key voices of the 20th century. And he was also a war poet. He talks about the First World War. Um, so everybody reads uh, his poems. Also because they have the advantage of being short. And so they lend themselves to the uh, classroom because they are short. Uh, they are usually accessible at very superficial level but also echo a lot of the history and the suffering that was going on in Italy. Um, one in particular is, I think, one of the shortest poems in uh, our literary tradition, and it's called uh, uh, Morning, Mattina in Italian, 
and I'll tell it to you in like uh, its original Billumino uh, Dimenso. That's the whole thing. So three words, Billumino Dimenso, which means I uh, well enlighten with infinity. It doesn't seem like much in English, but it is a key text. Um, it's something that Ungaretti writes during the war uh, as he is fighting. And so imagine, you know, uh, trench warfare, this young soldier in the mud, morning comes and then morning brings this sort of enlightenment and uplifting uh, uh, sensation to him. But uh, Baino reuses it within Fax Giallo. And the way in which he lowers it is by substituting all the vowels in the uh, short poem with just one vowel. So what was millumino di menso then becomes millimini di minzi, mellemene de mense, and so on and so forth throughout the five vowel in the, English, the Italian language. Now you see, you have this text that is very dear to all Italians, goes through this very violent transformation that lowers his status to almost a joke. How in the world am I going to translate it in English? So I did my best, but then the solution that usually translators have in front of this problem is the last resort, which is the footnote. And then you just give up because you, you have to recognize that there are limits to what uh, translation can do. But also, you know, it might introduce a technique or a solution that was not there in English before. And so this might be not a good place to do this, to substitute all the vowels uh, just for one successively. But now we have this device also in English, and perhaps someone else will find it useful in another application, in another uh, poem. So that's also an example of how all of these things that we've been talking about, uh, how language is important, the manipulation of language, the manipulation of tradition, and how all of, all of these can be used to cast an ironic, desecrating, costing, uh, caustic uh, light on reality, tradition, uh, our sense of a nation. This is a national poet for Italy, uh, our shared past, and, and so on and so forth. Um, thank you for discussing with us um, this remarkable text. Bino Yellow Fox and Other Poems is out now. You can find it whenever you get wherever you get your books. Thank you.